Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Judges in chapter number 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, you can take one from under the seat in front of you, and in the front portion of that, turn to page 193, and you would find yourself at Judges 16. You know, we live in a world of deceptive advertising. Not too long ago, I saw an ad for a new vehicle that said the cost of the new vehicle was $21,000, but you could buy this vehicle for $156 a month paid out over four years. And you look at that and you go, wow, that's affordable. But in the small print, you find out that your final payment after four years was more than $15,000. That's deceptive advertising. Many of us have seen on the television an ad for getting a free credit report on your credit from freecreditreport.com. It's a free credit report from freecreditreport.com. But if you go there, you find out that when you get your report, you are automatically enrolled something in something called Triple Advantage at a cost of $15 per month. Not exactly free. Deceptive advertising. And then I saw some advertising for these socks. It's actually on the label for these Pro Spirit socks. And it says on the label that these socks provide antimicrobial protection. And you think, well, I get these socks, then my feet will be germ-free. But here's what it says on the label. These antibacterial properties in these socks are for the protection of the socks only (laughs) and do not protect users against bacteria. They won't protect your feet, but if you stay awake every night fretting about your socks, you know, these are some socks that you want to get. Now, that is deceptive advertising. And the greatest illustration, I think, of deceptive advertising is sin. Sin is deceptive. It looks good, it feels good at first, but it proves to be deadly and destructive. Sin never advertises itself as a way to ruin your reputation or to lose your effectiveness or to bring heartache to your life. It never advertises itself as a way to rob you of peace and joy. Sin is deceptive, and sin distracts us from God's life principles. One of those life principles, what you sow, you reap. Well, we have a true illustration from life of deceptive advertising in the life of Samson. And we see in Samson's life someone who toyed with temptation, who cultivated bitter consequences, and who experienced spiritual failure and heartache. And yet, when we see Samson's whole story, we see the light of God's grace breaking through the gloom at the end of his life, and we see that there is still hope for those who are wayward. And I want you to think about yourself as you come here today. Maybe you are toying with sin, or you're thinking about toying with sin. If so, today's message is a good one. Maybe you're here today and you are actually in the reaping, not the sowing phase, but the reaping phase. You are right now today face to face with failure in your life. Maybe you're in the midst of gloom. 
And if that's true, this is a good message for you today. And I believe that God wants to teach all of us today. And so we're going to continue our series that we have entitled Iron Man, The Saga of Samson. And we looked first a couple of weeks back at his beginning in chapter 13, and we saw that he was designed to be a Nazarite for life. A Nazarite was one who was displaying consecration and dedication to the Lord. And the most obvious outward sign of being a Nazarite was to not cut your hair. And we see, we saw rather, that he was called to be a one-man army empowered by the Holy Spirit to deliver the nation from the Philistines. And then the second time we looked at his exploits in verses or rather chapters 14 and 15, we saw things like him tearing a lion apart with his bare hands and killing a thousand men with a dead donkey's dentures. But we also saw that he was infected with personal pride. and We saw how prosperity and popularity and sensuality were idols in his life. And as we ended the last time in this Iron Man series, we saw Samson praying to God for the very first time And rather than being immersed in self-worship, we see him describing himself as a servant of the Lord. Now today, as we look at this Iron Man, we come to his end in chapter 16. And as we look at chapter 16, we're going to see three life lessons that are embedded in chapter 16. Now I want to remind you that between chapter 15 and chapter 16, 18 years have gone by. And no doubt in those 18 years, Samson's legend grew. His name became a household word among the Philistines. No doubt the mothers would tell their children, stay away from strangers with long hair. And no doubt there were some young, brash Philistine youth who would go about bragging how one day they would be the one to defeat Samson. At the same time, over these 18 years, you can bet your bottom dollar that the Philistine military intelligence was watching this guy, tracking Samson, observing him closely. They analyzed him. They reanalyzed him. And what were they looking for? They were looking for his Achilles heel. They were looking for a weakness that they could breach. And although God had been gracious to Samson because he'd made some adjustments in his life spiritually, still for all the strength that God had given to him, we're going to find out his interior, his heart interior was still very weak, and he did not have a firm grasp on the key to consecration to the Lord. If you want to be consecrated to the Lord, the key to that is what goes on in our inner life. It would have been good for Samson to hear the words of Proverbs 16.32 where it says, he who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. What goes on on the inside is far more important. Now as we come to chapter 16, we're going to see Samson in three ways. Number one, we're going to see Samson in Gaza in verses 1 to 3. Then we're going to see Samson with Delilah in verses 4 to 20. And then we're going to see Samson under the Philistines in verses 21 to 31. So if you have your Bible open, take a look at the very first verse of chapter 16. It says, now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there. 
and went in to her. Now, I want, I want you to notice two things about this verse. The first thing I want you to notice is the disconnect and the inconsistency with Samson. Remember, in chapter 15 and verse 18, he identified himself as the Lord's servant. And now we come here, and the Lord's servant is going in to visit a Philistine prostitute. Not just a prostitute, but a Philistine prostitute. The very people that he was to help deliver the nation of Israel from. Now, how does that happen, that someone who's the Lord's servant chooses to go in to see this prostitute? Well, the answer really, I think, gets back to the inner life, the drift that was going on on the interior of Samson's life. And have you noticed that this disconnect, this inconsistency is growing in our culture? Where we have, you see it in the, in the government realm, where we have these leaders who are to be examples to the nation, and there's this disconnect, this inconsistency among the choices that they make. And sadly enough, we see this inconsistency and this disconnect going on in the church today, where you have many church leaders of all flavors who somehow don't understand that they are to be an example to people. So the first thing I wanted you to notice was that disconnect. The second thing I wanted you to notice is where he actually went. It says he went to Gaza. And you think, well, I don't know anything about Gaza. Well, this is very important to understand. There were five main cities among the Philistines. And the strongest city of the Philistines was Gaza. And so Samson goes to Gaza. He had to know that he would be easily recognized if they had water posters in that, in that day. You'd know his picture would have been on them. And so it appears that pride and overconfidence brings him to Gaza. He has this false sense of invincibility. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 tells us, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he not fall. Wow. So Samson shows up in Gaza visiting a prostitute. Now let's ask the key question, why? Why do you boldly strut into the number one city of your enemy and choose to take a walk on the wild side? Well, part of the answer, I think, has to be ego stroke. Again, I'm so invincible, no one can touch me. Another reason, though, I think has to be, and we've seen this in his life before, he was again worshiping at the idol of sensuality. And I like what Erwin Lutzer says about sensuality. He says, there is no sensation that promises so much, yet in the end stings so bitterly. He had been compromising his inner life, worshiping at the idol of sensuality. And listen, this is what's important. When you compromise your inner life, remember, it's the first step on a stairway that leads down to spiritual catastrophe. And so you have Samson in Gaza visiting a prostitute, and the word leaks out. 
And the military gathers. And they gather around the city gate. And the plan seems to be in the following verses that, well, you go into a prostitute, that means you're going to be there all night, so that means he'll be coming out in the morning. Let's grab him as he leaves the gate of the city in the daylight. And then what happens is an amazing twist in the saga. Look at verse 3. It says that Samson lay with this prostitute until midnight, but at midnight he arose and he took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts that held those doors and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Now, you say, what's going on here? Well, obviously, they probably left a few sentries there at midnight, but most of them expected him to show up at daylight, at daybreak. But he shows up at midnight, and he grabs these city gates. Now, historians tell us that these were huge city gates. They were made out of wood, but they were covered with metal. They were 13 to 14 feet wide and 10 to 15 feet tall. And check this out. They were 2 to 3 feet thick. In fact, they said in these kinds of gates, they would often have keys as large as two foot long to unlock the gate. And one scholar has estimated that these city gates weighed five tons. And so Samson picks up these gates, and he carries them to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron, which, by the way, from the city of Gaza was 40-plus miles away uphill, an incline that increased elevation 3,200 feet. Now think, you're one of the sentries hanging there at the gate. Who's going to stop a guy who picks up five-ton gates onto his shoulders and then starts marching 40 miles uphill in elevation 3,200 feet? Nobody's going to get in his way. And so God here very graciously empowers Samson. He's made a bad choice, but you'll notice he doesn't experience the consequences right here, although he is sowing some seeds, isn't he? In what you sow, you will reap. And you know, this is, all, this is like a lot of us. We venture into the turf of sin, and we don't immediately experience consequences and we make a mistake in our thinking. We mistake God's patience with us for God's leniency. And that's what Samson was doing here. And we do the same thing, and we forget that sin bites back at us. Gary Richmond, who is a zookeeper, had this to say. He says, Raccoons go through a a glandular change at, at about 24 months of age. He said after that, they often attack their owners. And since a 30 pound raccoon can be equal to a 100 pound dog in a scrap, he says, I felt compelled to mention this change that was coming to a pet raccoon owned by a young friend of mine by the name of Julie. And Julie listened politely as I explained the coming danger. And he said, I'll never forget her answer. She said, it will be different for me 
And she smiled as she added, Bandit, that was the name of her pet raccoon, wouldn't hurt me, he just wouldn't. Three months later, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial lacerations sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. And Bandit was released into the wild. And sin is like that. You see, too often it comes dressed in this adorable guise. And as we play with it, how easy it is to say, oh, it'll be different for me. But the results are quite predictable. Well, the next thing that happens in chapter 16 is we see Samson with Delilah. And notice in verses 4 and 5, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak whose name was Delilah. And notice the lords of the Philistines came up to her and they said to her, here's what we want you to do, Delilah, entice him. See where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. Remember, they had been stalking him and watching him, looking for the opening that could come. And notice it says, these lords of the Philistines, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, the lords of the Philistines, you need to know there were the five main cities, okay? So you had five lords, all right? Now, you read through this in your Bible, and, and it seems like, well, that sounds like quite a bit of money, but listen, this is a massive amount of money. Basically, it would be about 10 pieces of silver a year to pay a year's average wage. So it would be 10 for a year. And what do they offer to her with 1,100? That's 110 years worth of money. And all five of them offered her 110 years worth of money. This is like five centuries worth of silver for somebody. It's a massive amount of money. And of course, she agrees to the plan. And so, beginning in verse 6, this is a pattern we're going to see repeated. Samson has Delilah say to him, please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. And he says, well, if they bind me with seven fresh cords, like seven bowstrings that have not been dried, then I will become weak and I'll be like any other man. And so the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, in essence, and they had not been dried, and she bound him with them. And she had men lying in wait in the inner room, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of... Uh, Toe snaps when it is touching the fire, when a bowstring would touch the fire, and his strength was not discovered. And then we have this go around in a little cycle. And verses 10 to 12, it's the same thing. Oh, Samson, tell me. Well, if they bind me with new ropes. She, she binds them with new ropes. Oh, the Philistines are upon you. He snaps the new ropes. See it happening again in verses 13 and 14. He says, well, listen, here's what happens. If you weave my hair on the loom and you fasten it with the shuttle on the loom, I'll lose all my strength. She does that very thing. Oh, they are upon you, Samson. And, of course, he immediately releases himself. And you think, what is this guy doing? Think about what his hard attitude is about the seriousness of sin and temptation and all of this. 
Then I want your eyes to go down to verse 15. She says to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And notice verse 16, it came about when she pressed him daily with her words. She was wearing him down with her words. Which, by the way, a lot of young guys try to do to girls during the dating process. Wear them down with words. Well, that's what she was seeking to do. And notice his soul was annoyed to death. And finally, in verse 17, he capitulates. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, a razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. Now, the power was not in his hair per se. The power was in the active presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. But the loss of his hair was a repudiation and a violation of his Nazarite vow. And so, as happened in the other patterns, she calls for the Lord of the Philistines, come up again. Uh, she has him go to sleep, laying across her lap. She calls for a man and had him shave off the locks of Samson's hair, and his strength left him. And again, she says, verse 20, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and he woke up. And he was going to go get himself free, but he did not know. Notice this phrase you can underline if you mark in your Bible. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. His heart relationship with God was so cold, he was not aware that the Lord had departed from him. Now, this brings us to the first embedded life lesson I see in chapter 16, and that is it is dangerous to toy with temptation. It is dangerous to toy with temptation. See, our tendency is to play with temptation. I'm just going to play with it for a while. And God's counsel is to walk away from temptation. See, our tendency is to flirt with it. And God's counsel is to flee from it. Now, why does God say that we should walk away from temptation and we should flee from it? Why does he say that? Ever stop and ask yourself these questions? Well, that's his counsel because sin is deceptive. It looks good. It feels good at first. But it is deadly. It is destructive. Remember, sin never advertises itself as a way to ruin your reputation. It will never advertise itself as a way to lose your spiritual effectiveness. It will never advertise itself as a way to bring heartache into your life. It will never advertise itself as a way to rob you of peace and joy. It will never advertise itself as a way to dishonor God. Sin is deceptive, and thus we have God's counsel to walk away and to flee. And sin is blinding. Remember, he got away with it in Gaza. 
And three times with Delilah, he's saying, I can handle this. I can keep this under control. This is not going to cause damage in my life. But each step of compromise leads to greater vulnerability. It is dangerous, men and women, to toy with temptation. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that we need to watch our thought life. We need to watch what we are reading. We need to watch what we are watching. The kind of television, the kind of movies, the kind of internet content that we're looking at. It means that we need to be cautious with the friends that we hang out with. It's dangerous to toy with temptation. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company corrupts good morals. You need to be careful who you run with. We need to avoid people that drag us down morally, who would seek to drag us away from our relationship with God. You know, the New Testament says very directly, it's a command, flee sexual immorality. Run from sexual sin outside of a marriage relationship. The New Testament says directly, flee from the love of money. It is dangerous to toy with temptation. I want you to just close your eyes for a moment. And while your eyes are closed, I want you to answer this question in your mind. What area of temptation poses the greatest threat to your spiritual life. I want you to just picture what that would be, the area of temptation that poses the greatest threat to your spiritual life. And while you're picturing that in your mind, remember that God says, don't flirt with it, flee from it. In Judges 16, the next thing we see is Samson under the Philistines. And in verse 21, the Philistines seize him and they gouge out his eyes. Those eyes that earlier in the story of Samson the Iron Man were so quick to say, she looks good to me, she is right in my eyes, have now been gouged out. And notice it says they brought him down to Gaza, the site of his arrogant triumph was now going to the place, be the place where he would be displayed as a hairless trophy of the Philistines. And notice it says he was a grinder in the prison. That's the lowest job there was in the culture for the lowest of slaves. Here is Israel's liberator in the dregs of society now. Gary Inrig said he had done what was right in his own eyes and followed the lust of his eyes. Now the Philistines gouged them out. He had refused to discipline his own life, and now he became a slave and a prisoner of his enemies. He had visited a prostitute in Gaza and escaped without harm. Now he was a prisoner in Gaza. You see what a picture this is? It's a great picture of what sin does to us. It blinds us, and it binds us, and it will hold us captive. Which leads us to what I see as the second embedded lesson in chapter 16, and that is this, sin when chosen 
breeds consequences. See, if you allow the fire to keep smoldering, eventually it will break into flames and consequences will burn their way into your life. Over the years, I've preached some, some little thoughts and I've read some little thoughts and I, on my, my Bible that I had since 1970, I, I, I wrote in the, in the back blank pages some of these thoughts and I was just going through that recently and here's one of the thoughts I had in the back of my Bible. The choice is yours and the consequences will be as well. See, God will give us choices that we make, but the consequences will be ours as well. And Samson chose sensuality and sexual sin. And as you're here today, maybe you've been cultivating that same crop. I don't know. Maybe you have been cultivating a different crop. Maybe it's been greed for money and greed for stuff. And you think, well, people really cultivate that so that they cheat and steal? Oh, yeah. People just like your neighbors, and maybe some of us have been doing that. Did you read about the 36-year-old PTA president from a Moore Elementary School who was arrested for embezzling $10,000 from cookie dough sales? What crop had she been cultivating in her life? Maybe you read about the ticket scalping scheme at the University of Kansas where five athletic department employees had skimmed off a million dollars. See, what have they been cultivating in their life? Maybe you're here today and you've been cultivating self-promotion and pride. You're just into promoting yourself. You want to look good to everybody else. I don't know. Maybe you have been cultivating anger and resentment in your life. What I would say is whatever it may be, whatever crop you may be messing with, do not be deceived. You may skate through once. You may get away with it several times. But I'm here to tell you, the Bible teaches us you will reap eventually. You will reap some heartache some loss of peace and joy. You may reap a ruined reputation. You may reap anguish in your disappointment before God. Sin, when chosen, breeds consequences. And by the way, men and women, that is truth in advertising. That is the truth. Maybe you're here today and you are facing the consequences right now from some choices that you have made. Maybe you are under the pile. Maybe it's just totally overwhelming to you. And if that's true, I want you to notice the third life lesson that is embedded in chapter 16, and that is failure does not have to be final. Failure doesn't have to be final. Notice verse 22. It says, however, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. I just picture Samson being there in prison as the grinder. And every time he touched his head, he heard God saying, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And even after this colossal screw-up that he's had, God's arms are open. And it's important for us to understand that his heart is always open. 
He is always ready to hear your cry in the day of trouble. And he, despite whatever failure you may have had and whatever consequences that you may be receiving, he desires to restore a relationship with you. He offers the opportunity to still be used. Now, I want you to understand, as we see this come to an end, all the consequences are not erased. (laughs) Samson is still blind no matter what happens. But what we're going to see is God's grace in the midst of the consequences and how by his grace his hand reaches out to pick up Samson. What happens in verses 23 to 25 is a great party that the Philistines throw. I mean, they're all boozing it up. They're sloshed. It's going to be buffoon time, you know. They want to make fun of Samson so that he may amuse them. And then in verses 26 and and 27, we learn a little bit more about the party. There was a main level of the party where the five lords of the five cities, remember those five cities? They're there and all the dignitaries are there and all the beautiful people are there. And on the roof over all of this, 3,000 more people gloating and mocking. And notice verse 28, Samson calls to the Lord and says, oh Lord God, We've never seen a prayer like this from him. Please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Verse 28 is a prayer of repentance and restoration. Do you know this is the only time in Samson's life he ever requests that God would strengthen him? The only time. And he's basically saying to God, remember me, strengthen me in my situation. We see, I believe here, humility before the Lord. We see confession of weakness. We see a desire to rely on God's strength. And so in verses 29 and 30, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the whole house rested and braced himself against them. And then he shouts out, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people were in it. And the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he killed in his life. In an act of self-sacrifice, he ends his life as a hero. Failure does not have to be final. And I will remind you that Samson shows up in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And by the way, you ought to go study that from time to time. Do you know that in that Hall of Faith, there are people who had significant blemishes in their life? Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Samson. See, what does that tell us? It tells us that God's grace is great and that he can make your hair grow again. He can use you again. You know, when we are faced with failure, I find that we really have two choices. We can wallow in it. We can wallow in the guilt. We can wallow in the remorse. We can wallow in the self-pity. Or we can turn to the Lord We can confess and ask for cleansing. We can ask him to restore our relationship with him. We can say, God, I wanted to be dependent on you. We can say to God, remember me and strengthen me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much 
for the Word of God. We thank you that the people that are in the Bible are not super saints because we're not. And we thank you for warning us about how when we toy with temptation, it can cause trouble. We would pray we would not buy the false advertisements of it. We should remember that what we sow, we will reap. But Father, we would just thank you that failure is not final. It all begins, all the trouble of our life really begins when we forget you on the interior. Help us to remember to guard our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.